about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from his hand of Pharaoh, from the hand of Pharaoh, and from Herod, Herod, and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they, they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when they, the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, having pursued persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, and God, every day we need it. We need our hearts to be edified and encouraged and reminded that, God, you are a triumphant king, and your kingdom is triumphant and will reign and be victorious forever. God, we need to be reminded of that right now as we go out into this world that seeks to oppose us. And oppose your message. God, encourage our hearts now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've seen some stunning comebacks in the history of sports. And one particular one is that one that we're not removed from very far is last year's Super Bowl. The Patriots versus the Falcons. If you didn't watch the Super Bowl, here's what happened. Patriots were down 25 points. 
and it did not look very good for them. It looked actually hopeless. Uh, but rallying together, they came back and they won it over, overtime, 35 to 28. Stunning. I actually left the game halfway through because I really didn't think that it was actually going to happen. They were actually going to come through with it. And so I left halfway. And there's been other events like this. In 1957, uh, Charlton athletes, or athletics, uh, against Humbersville Town, uh, a soccer match. They were down 5-1. to one. This was Charlton. Down 5-1 to one deficit. And they actually were down 10 players as well. They were only down to 10 because due to injury. And so they looked hopeless. But with 28 re- min- minutes remaining, they came back and they actually beat them. 6-5. to five. Amazing, incredible turnout for them. And you're thinking, man, the audience there, the crowd's thinking, there's no way. we got to leave the game now. Let's, let's get home, get to lunch, get to dinner, whatever, because they ain't pulling this one out. But incredibly, something happened, a miracle happened there. It seemed hopeless and it seemed lost, but they came through. And this is a similar scenario here in our, in our text today in Acts 12. The church looked home, hopeless. The church looked like they had no possible chance of getting out of the circumstances that Herod put them in. By all perception, Acts 1-8, the mission of Acts, looked like it was over. But God intervened and God rescued and God preserved his people and his promises there that day in Acts 12. And this is just a foretaste of the greatest comeback story ever told. And so in Acts 12, we get, a, we get a mini episode that illustrates the theme of the entire book of Acts. We have two kingdoms clashing here. Throughout the book of Acts, there's always two kingdoms clashing. The kingdom of this world and God's kingdom. And so again, we're, we're invited into this story here in Acts 12 where Herod is playing the, playing the part of the kingdom of the world and God and his people are pray, playing the part of the kingdom of God. We see that they're always attempting to subvert God's kingdom, but perpetually failing to do so because of God's supernatural power and intervention. And so the tension between the two kingdoms, the clashing, Luke depicts it as contrast in this story, how they look completely different. And they're contrasted by their weapons, by their powers, by their citizens, and by their outcomes. And Luke sets it up this way, sets up the contrast this way, in order to reiterate his point throughout the book of Acts, that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's why he sets up these contrasts between weapons, power, citizens, and outcomes, ultimately to show that God's will and God's kingdom will triumph over any person or kingdom or ruler that will attempt to thwart it. So let's look at a couple of these. That the first one is this, is that the weapons of each kingdom. Let's look at this. In September 52 B.C., Julius Caesar became known as one of the greatest leaders and warriors of world history. In the Battle of the Romans and the Gauls, Julius Caesar brought 50,000 Romans with him to attack 200,000 Gauls. It looked hopeless at that point. But even more hopeless was that they attacked them, and they attacked them on a hill, which everybody knows you want the high point in, in a war, right? And so the Gauls, all 200,000 of them, went up to the Mount of Elysia where their fort was, fortified there, while the Romans are at the bottom, only 50,000 of them. So it looked hopeless. But here's what Julius Caesar did. Very interesting thing. Very smart. I would not have thought about this myself. He built an 11-mile-long fortification around the entire mountain. 
You're thinking, what? Why would you do that? Well, you know what he did? He starved them out. He built a fortification that they could not come through. So you might be thinking, hey, look, hey, uh, Caesar here, you, you need to start getting your catapults together, your bows and arrows, your swords and spears, and you need to start attacking them up in that mountain. That's what the outsider eye looks at. It says, hey, look, you've you got to go up there. They have the high ground. They have 200,000 men. you got to do something about this. You can't stand here and build a wall around it. It looks crazy to the outsider's eye, his weaponry and his strategy, but actually it's, it's very smart. And it shows strength and power and wisdom that everybody expecting. Use swords and spears and bows. But the odd strategy and weaponry, though it may look like weakness and defeat, is actually strength and triumph. And this is the exact situation that's going on here in Acts 12. Is that consider the gravity of the situation. Herod is violently opposing the church right now. He's killed James and he's thrown Peter in prison. These are the two guys who are the leaders, the pillars of the church right now. And so the reader, as well as the church right now in Acts 12, is thinking, what is going on? What are we going to do? Our, our, our leaders have been killed, and they're still persecuting us. What's going to happen? What, what do we do? Where do we go from here? That's what they're thinking. That's what we're thinking as we read through the book of Acts, and that's what the church is thinking right there. What is going to happen to us? And so how is the church going to respond in this situation? Well, it has two options. First, the church in Acts 12, they can say, oh, Peter's in prison, James has been killed. Let's just disband this whole thing and get, let, let's get out of here. Like, I, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. So they could say, hey, let's just give up. Fun's over. Or they could do a second thing. Or they could violently rebel. And that's typically what the response, that's what the first inclination is of our culture and of their culture. Fight back. Rebel. Rally together, revolt. You expect them to, to be at Herod's palace with swords and weapons and spears, calling for Herod's head on a platter. Violence is often met with violence, injustice with injustice. And so they're expecting, hey, the church should act like the world. They, they killed James, and they put Peter in prison. Go attack Herod. That's all you got to do. That's what they're saying. That the church should act like everyone else. That's what everybody's expecting. Be like everybody else. Attack. But the thing is that God's people, we do not fight in the same army or serve the same ruler or fight with the same weapons of this world. John Stott said it really well. He said, here then are two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer which is the only power which the powerless possess. Swords and spears and prisons are met with the church's prayer. But the world looks at prayer as kind of an odd thing. People close their eyes and they talk out loud. That's what the lo world looks at prayer. You close your eyes and you talk out loud to somebody. That's odd. That's how the world looks at prayer of the church. Looks like it, it's insignificant, it's inadequate, it's pathetic, it's weak, it's actually humorous that you do those things. But as we've seen in the past is that this is the greatest weapon that we wield as God's people. Greater than any man-made contraption. Consider the Israelites in Israel. When in the midst of turmoil and oppression and pain and suffering under Pharaoh's hand, 
they cried out to their God. Listen to Exodus 2, 23-25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from, came from slavery, came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. In the world's eyes, prayer is crazy. This weapon of prayer is crazy. It's inadequate. It's insufficient. It's humorous. But it's actually the greatest power we possess as God's people. And it's sufficient that through God's intervention, He can bring about deliverance if it be God's will. But do you feel like this is your natural inclination? Is that in spite of pain and suffering and insults, do you find yourself responding in prayer or rather Facebook and social media? That's really what our culture says. Look, somebody, somebody talks bad about you, don't pray for them. Slander them on Facebook, on Twitter. Make them look bad. Respond how they respond. But believer, this is, this is a reminder that because we're God's people, we don't respond like the world does. And that when we do respond like the world does, it says not just something about ourselves, but it says something about our God. When we respond like the world with insults and attacks and assaults, we're saying, we don't trust God to handle this. Let me take this up. I'll handle this with my own weapons, not the weapons of this world. And so, believer church, let's take on the, the example of our Savior. As 1 Peter 2.21 says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Church, we do not respond like the world does because our weapons are different. Our weapon is the greatest weapon that can be possessed, and that is prayer. That's what makes us look different than the kingdoms of this world. That the kingdoms of this world, they respond in, in suffering and attack. But the church responds in prayer, earnestly praying, as it says in verse 5. The second is this. The powers of each kingdom. The powers of each kingdom. Have you ever put a lot of time into something just to ensure that it wouldn't fall apart? Is it, uh, there's times I put things into, you know, tried to duct tape something, glue it together, saran wrap it together, weld it together, and then duct tape it ag together again to ensure this thing is not going to fall apart at all. It has no chance. Only to find out that Jude's able to tear it apart with his bare hands. And I'm like, I duct taped it twice. I duct taped it twice. It should not have fallen apart. That's the exact impression I get when I read Acts 12. That's the exact impression. Is that you look at what Herod has gone through. The, the great lengths he's gone to to ensure, look, Peter's not getting out of this prison. I've gone to great lengths to ensure he ain't getting out of here. Look at him. He says, he lays violent hands on the church. He kills James. He imprisons Peter. He assigned four squads of soldiers to guard him. Peter had to sleep between two guards. He had two chains on him, and then he had sentries, other guards, guarding the door at all times. Herod has gone to great lengths to ensure this guy is not getting out, and this kingdom is not advancing, not on my watch. 
That is the world's power on display, right? By all accounts, he's taken every precaution to make sure that today this kingdom of God, this Christianity, is going to be silenced. There will be no more of this after Peter is gone. That's the world's power on display, that he's going to silence this movement right now. And so as you read this, you, you think, man, the likelihood of, of Peter getting out, it's not just improbable, it's impossible. There's no way Peter is getting out of this situation. Look at the great lengths that Herod's gone to. But then the contrast here is, look at God's power on display compared to Herod's. Herod takes all these precautions, but look at God's power in the supernatural intervention. In contrast, God shows his superiority in just how easy it is for him to foil Herod's plan and actions. Look how easy it is. Luke, Luke sets it up really well. It's beautifully narrated for us is that he tells all these lines, all these verses are given to Herod and all the measurements that he's gone to to keep him safe. And then you get the rescue of Peter, and it's so short. Angel of the Lord appears, bright light, get up, let's go. That's it. Look how easy that is. Herod gets like five lines saying all the links that he went to, to and then God's like, man, that's like yesterday's trash. That's how easy it is to throw you out. It, God shows his power in a supernatural intervention and just how easy it is for him to get rid of all Herod's plans and actions. That's how easy it is. So easy. God in his power shows just how insignificant and vain Herod's attempts are to thwart his mission by rescuing Peter with such ease. Not only that, is that God's power is, is put on display in how he answers the earnest prayers of his people. He's unlike any other God of Ro the Roman culture. He actually hears his people's prayers, and he actually has the ability to bring them out. That's why the Old Testament talks about just the vanity of praying to idols. You know what's vain? Because they don't have real ears. They're statues. Isaiah talks about you have to put them on your back to carry them. Isn't that crazy? You have to put your God on your back to carry him over there. Your God can't do that himself? Wow. But here we get a difference. Is that this God, he hears his people's prayers, and he actually has the ability and power to intervene and do something about it. That's how he shows his power over Herod. Is that Herod, Herod he can take all the precautions he wants. He can make all the provisions. He can request and command and demand all that he wants to keep Peter in prison and to silence his kingdom. But if God does not will it so, it will not happen. Because God's power is so much greater than his. As much as Herod can plead and bring something into fulfillment, if the Lord does not will it so, it will not happen. That's the difference between looking sovereign and actually being sovereign. That Herod, he wants to present himself and posture himself as sovereign, but he truly is not. Number three, is that the citizens of each kingdom... Those look different. Look back at verse 5. This is setting the scenario for us. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the citizens of this kingdom are making prayers to God in behalf of Peter. And so as you look at after Peter gets rescued, there's this scene with the people who are in, the, in, Rhoda's, or in Mary's house with Rhoda, and they're praying for Peter. But it's actually very humorous because Peter's released. 
He comes to the house. He knocks on the door. Rhoda comes out there and meets him. Oh, it's Peter. Oh, man. She goes back in and says, you're crazy. You've seen his angel. He's not there. Like, the people are stunned. They, they, they're skeptics. And Luke has kind of intentionally shaped this story in, in light of what's happened after Jesus' death when he appears. Luke 24, 8 through 11. Just listen to these words. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This is the two women. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Y'all women are crazy. You don't know what you've seen. It's exactly the response to Rhoda. You've gone mad, Rhoda. There's no way he's been released. There's no way. He's dead. And that's how God's citizens are right here in this story are kind of presented. They're presented as, as faithless. They're surprised that their prayers could actually be answered. They're stunned, skeptical, distrusting. John Polhill says this, they found it easier to believe that Peter had died and gone to heaven than that their prayers been answered. They found it easier to believe, yeah, Peter's dead. He went to heaven rather than believe God could actually supernaturally intervene and save him. So despite the faithlessness of the citizens of God's kingdom, God is not restrained by their faith or their faithlessness to intervene and act. He supernaturally intervenes despite the church's skepticism. Have you ever found yourself in this position? That when you pray, you say, I find it very highly unlikely that God is actually cares about what I'm requesting or even has the power to answer what I'm requesting. You may not say that out loud, but it might be in the back of your mind as you pray. Yeah, I, I know I feel obligated to pray this, but I really just don't think God hears this or cares, or it just seems very unlikely that he will actually bring this about. So we question God's compassion, we question God's character when we pray sometimes. And so what I, I would urge you is that let us pray as though we believe that God could intervene at any point, is powerful enough to bring about everything that we ask for, if it is according to his will. Let's not be skeptical in unbelief. He can actually bring this about. So as we've seen that the citizens of God's kingdom are presented as faithless in just one, this one scenario, is that look at the citizens of Herod's kingdom. They're oppressed. They're needy. They're even deceived. So look at how Herod treats his guards and the people of Tyre and Sidon. He acts like a god towards them. That's why they cry out to him. He takes men's lives out of women, and they call him a god by how he postures himself and provides or withholds food from the needy. They're oppressed and needy and deceived. The people, his people, they, they quiver. They're terrified of Herod. He's erratic. He, he acts on a whim. He's unpredictable. He's easily angered. They can't approach him because they might be taken out if they do. Or if any opposition... They might be killed on the spot. That's Herod's citizens. They're terrified of their king. They don't know how to approach him. But what the Bible tells us is that God's citizens, us, we have no fear when we approach our God. We have no fear. Our God is not like Herod. He is not erratic. He is not unpredictable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His will and his character will never change. And for those who are in Christ, you can take this, is that for those in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation 
And so when we approach God, we don't approach God in fear of terror of our lives being taken. But we approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ with joy. And so if this morning you, you feel as though you approach God in fear, terror, that at any moment he might smite you, either you, you have not experienced the peace that comes with knowing Christ, or you have misunderstood your position. Maybe you don't have peace with Christ this morning, and you need it. Or maybe you've misunderstood your position in Christ. Understand this, that Christ has come to bear the wrath of God in our place. And that now because of that, we can approach him in assurance and confidence, as Hebrews 10 says. Not worry that this God will go crazy and kill us on a whim, that he's unpredictable. He's trustworthy. Lastly is this. Look at the difference in the outcomes of each kingdom. Look at the outcomes. In Greek and Roman mythology, there was a, a creature or a monster that could regenerate its head. It's called a hydra. So warriors would go to battle with this, this monster, dragon-look thing, and they'd cut off its head and say, yeah! And they, they'd raise their swords like they just killed it in triumph and victory, only to find out that when you cut off its head, two more pop up. And their arrogance and their pride, thinking that they have just been victorious over Hydra, they actually cost them their lives. And this is similar with Herod. I, I don't want to compare the church to a Hydra. That would be kind of odd, kind of weird. But that's kind of like how it is. Is that Herod thinks he's going to eliminate and eradicate this Christianity, this kingdom, by getting rid of James and imprisoning Peter and getting rid of him too. And, and the concept is, if I kill the people, I'll kill the movement. Kill the people, I'll kill the movement. So let's get rid of James, let's get rid of Peter, and, and then it'll be done. We'll silence it. It'll be over. There'll be no more kingdom. But unfortunately, this is not like any other social movement or political movement. That might work in any other's case. You kill the people, you might kill the movement. But in God's kingdom, that is not the case at all. Is that because Christ has commissioned it and God has filled them with his spirit, the movement, this people, this church, will not be eradicated or removed or disposed of like any other movement. You slay James, you imprison Peter, but as a result, the word of God increases and multiplies. Multiplication by subtraction almost. That God's kingdom will not be eradicated by swords and spears like any other kingdom. And so as you get to the end of this chapter, the story takes a turn. There's a, almost a reversal. If you look at what happened in the beginning with Herod, persecuting the church and killing people and imprisoning people. Look at what happens at the end. Who's killed and disposed of at the end? Herod. It's a complete reversal. The guy who was killing is now the guy who was killed. It would be as if a boxer entering the ring is welcomed and introduced with smoke and lights and bodyguards and loud cheers. And he's announced as the greatest fighter of the world. Only to find out when the bell rings, he's knocked out with the first punch. That's irony. And that's what happens here. The guy who looks terrible, the guy who looks like he's going to have complete control over the world and he's going to eradicate God's kingdom, is actually the guy who's killed in the end, easily. It's so easy for God to dispose of his enemies who try to derail or thwart his purposes or his kingdom. 
Though James's death and Peter's imprisonment may look like setbacks in God's economy and God's kingdom, for those who think they can set themselves up as gods, they'll find out quickly that they cannot deter the mission of the one true living almighty God. They're a joke. So once again, we get the scenario of opposition and inability to overthrow God's kingdom. So this has been the case throughout the book of Acts, is that people have stepped up on this altar and tried to take out God's kingdom with swords or spears or however, only to find out that's impossible. And that's the exact warning that they got in Acts chapter 5 from Gamaliel. He said, look, if you oppose this movement, you're going to be doing two things. One, you're going to utterly fail. Two, you're going to ultimately be opposing God if you try and take these people out. And initially they accept the advice and then they forget it. And they find out that they're going to pay with it with their own lives. And so a good life lesson is that those who seek to make themselves gods will soon fall into the hands of the real true God. And this is a good summation from a song of Rich Mullins of this entire book and chapter. It says, and the church advances on the gates of hell. She clings to a light that will not be quelled. John Stott summarizes this well. I want to read this long quote. Listen to this. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on a rampage, arresting and persecuting the church leaders. At the end, he himself struck down and died. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That is the case. That we get a little mini episode into what God's kingdom is all about. Is that though it looks like it might be wiped off the face of the earth, though it looks like it might be in, like the Great Commission might be over, that God prevails. And ultimately God will prevail. So what is some application for us today? How do we, how do we take this home? I think one thing is this, is that we must remember that prayer is the church's greatest weapon against cultural opposition. We cannot act like the world. We cannot function like them. We cannot respond like them. As I said earlier, is that typically the world responds with Facebook posts and social media posts. Is that when there's any sort of oppression or seeming oppression against Christianity, what do we do? We run to social media and say, oh, those liberals, man, always coming at Christianity, always trying to get rid of us, they're terrible. And we slander them. We take up their weapons. We use the weapons that they use against us, against them. Even when it may not be associated with Christianity. Maybe it's a co-worker who's insulting you. What do you do? We do these things called sub-posts or sub-tweets. Meaning, you don't call the person out by name. You just basically tell everything about the person. And it's basically, oh yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, this person, oh, they're so terrible. But I'm not going to say their name, but they're, they're brown hair with brown eyes. They live on this street. They drive this car. They have this many kids. But I'm not going to say their name. That's how we respond. That's how the world responds, and, and the church has taken on some of those. Is that we slander that way. But, but consider this. Is that rather than respond with insulting social media posts or attacks against whoever is attacking Christianity, what if we said, hey, let's just gather at my home tonight, and we're just going to pray for the, the salvation of ISIS. 
We're just going to pray for them. Or, hey, you know this person, this political person is is stepping up and they want to get rid of Christianity and all religious talk. Let, let's just meet at my home tonight. Let's just pray for this man woman. What if we did that? Because what we're going to find out is that these weapons that we wield, that the world wields, they're not going to work. They're going to make us just like them. So we have to remember that prayer is the church's greatest weapon against cultural opposition. And it's not a passive weapon. It's an active weapon that God uses to bring about his purposes. Second is this, is that the church's prayer should not be should be expectant, not indifferent. The church's prayer should be expectant, not indifferent. William Carey, a Baptist missionary, spent over 40 years in India. And before he left for the mission field, he gave one of the greatest sermons in order to create some motivation to do missions. The name of the sermon was this, Expect Great Things from God and Attempt Great Things for God. In this story, what do you get? The church is not expecting Peter to be released. They're earnestly praying, but they're surprised, they're stunned that God actually would intervene and answer their prayers. Is that if we pray, we need to pray not indifferently, not, oh, it really doesn't matter if God intervenes here, or you know what, I I just don't know if this is very unlikely that he would do something like this. We need to pray expectantly. Is that if this is the Lord's will, God will bring it about. We need to pray like that. And let me just give you one that's hit home for me. What about times when you've prayed for somebody who has cancer? And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm praying this, but it's too far gone. They're going to be like everybody else. We don't like to say that, but that, that's actually the truth. There's times I've thought like that. I'm praying just because I I know I'm obligated to and I feel like I need to, but it's already this stage. And the people, the percentages are here. The doctors have given us, look, the the expectancy to come out of this is very unlikely. That's praying indifferently. Hey, look, everything around us says this person's not going to make it, so I'm going to pray for them just to do it. That's praying with unbelief. That's praying, questioning God's power, questioning God's mercy, questioning God's compassion. The church is not called to pray indifferently, but with expectancy that if this is the Lord's will, God will bring it about. If it is the Lord's will for this person to have no more cancer, God will do it. Let us expect great things from God, because he is powerful enough to bring about whatever he so wills. Let us not pray indifferently with unbelief or skepticism. You don't pray to a, an idol or another ruler. You pray, pray to the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. And then are you going to be okay if he chooses not to answer your prayer? That's the next step, the next question. Are you going to be okay that he not answer your prayer? Are you going to trust that he's wiser than you? That you think that you have this whole situation figured out? That you think you know what the outcome should be? Don't question his power. Don't question his compassion, and don't even question his wisdom, that if he does not bring it about, then he's much wiser than you, and he knows what's best. Last, thirdly, is that the church should be the refuge of hope, not of defeat. 
oftentimes when we see pain and suffering and turmoil and oppression in this world, we become doomsday people. Oh, man, there's no hope in this world. So terrible. Uh, The church is not to be the refuge of defeat and hopelessness, but of hope. This entire world without Christ is hopeless already. It does not need to enter a church door to find more hopelessness. It enters a church door to find hope in this world. That's what people are looking for. They're looking for a hope. They're looking for a purpose. And too often times we speak like doomsday people. We act and speak and think like, there's no hope in this world. It's so terrible. What the world needs is not more hopelessness. They have enough of that. They need the hope that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they enter church doors, they need to find a refuge for hope. So that when they walk out, they'll say, I walk out into a hopeless world with the only hope in this world. So let us check our character. Let us check our tone. Let us check our lives. Let us check our thoughts and say, do we just live like it's doomsday here? Or are actually we're the agents of hope in this world? Look, there's clubs and there's there's groups all over this world, but they don't give their people hope when they walk out the door. Only the church does because because the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's be people who are of hope. And lastly, I want to make a plead with anyone who is an unbeliever sitting here today. You are not invincible. I pray that Herod's outcome would be a warning to you and a lesson. Is that in this world, no man is his own island. No man is his own God. No man gets to choose his own paths and make himself the God in this world. Listen, if you do so, you will have the same outcome like Herod. That you cannot be your own God. Because one day you will stand before a true holy God. Everyone will. And we will either meet him as a heavenly father with open arms or we will meet him as a righteous warrior judge. And for those who have set themselves up as autonomous gods that they call the shots in this world, not a God who sits on the throne, then you will meet him as a warrior judge. And I would warn you now today, you do not want to meet him like that. This is just a picture of the final day. Yeah, this is bad right now what happens to Herod. But it is much worse what will happen on Judgment Day for anybody who does not repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You want to be in submission to Jesus Christ. You don't want to be in opposition to him. Because he will ultimately triumph and win that battle. So I plead with you today. If you are not in Christ, that you would turn away from your sin. That you you would trust him. That he is the refuge of hope in this world. And that he can forgive you of all that you have done wrong. and believe today. Posture yourself in humble submission, not in arrogant opposition to him. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. And as Acts 12 has been a reminder for us that God's kingdom, your kingdom, O God, will triumph over every earthly kingdom in this world. And that is the hope that we have in Christ, is that we have a hope in this world knowing that kings and rulers, they come and they go. They look terrible and they look oppressive, but ultimately, you are the eternal king, O God. You reign on your throne forever, and every king of this world will bow before you one day. God, let us, let us sing about that hope.
Let us take joy in that hope, knowing that our God wins in the end. So God, as we go out into this world, let us be beacons and agents of hope in this world, knowing that our God wins and that he will win the battle. In Jesus' name I pray.